Welcome to Home of the Brave. I'm Scott Carrier. I should confess that I have a personal interest in listening to veterans talk about how they recover from war. I was never in the military, but I spent some time overseas as a war correspondent for Esquire, Harper's, and Mother Jones magazines. I was never in a battle or close to a bomb going off. I saw the effects of these things after they were over. Bodies on the ground, neighborhoods turned to rubble, people silent and in shock. The main thing I have to deal with is knowing that a couple times, people who were helping me with my stories were punished severely after I left. I got to fly home to America, but they had to stay there and suffer the consequences. And it was my fault. If I hadn't been there, it wouldn't have happened. I carry this guilt. So when veterans speak of their experiences recovering from war, I listen very carefully. But then I think there are a lot of people, a lot of Americans anyway, who've been through traumatic experiences and need to recover from them. We live in a violent culture. I have two more interviews with veterans. The first is with Adrian Kenny, who is now president of Veterans for Peace. She joined the Army in 1994 when she was 17, thinking it would be a good way to go to college. She served 10 years stateside as an Arab linguist intercepting communications. She can't really talk about that because it's classified, but she can talk about how when she got out of the Army, she began to feel like she was going insane. She had a job with the VA, studying vets with traumatic brain injuries. Yeah, so after I got out of the military, I went back to school and finished my um, master's in psychology. I really wanted to work as a counselor working with veterans. I got my first job in the Department of Veterans Affairs, and I was doing PTSD and traumatic brain injury evaluations. They were just trying to figure out how to better provide care and assessment for returning veterans because with IEDs and other, other realities of the wars that we were fighting there, there were a lot of explosions and other incidents that you know led to PTSD and traumatic brain injury in addition to depression and anxiety and the whole host of other conditions um, veterans come back and have to work through. And I had never deployed and so it was the first time that I really got a chance to see the impact that our policies had on real people, you know, fellow serving soldiers. And I think that got me thinking about things in a, a more real way than I had before. And it honest, I honestly felt like I was going insane. I thought that I was like having some weird, like early onset, late onset schizophrenia. I had these moments where I just, like the panic um, was intense. I definitely went through anxiety and depression it was probably more so depression. I definitely had times where I had to step back from really even engaging with people. It's so easy to just believe that your country is good and that your military is doing the right thing. And especially when 
you know, you're told again and again and again that you have to support the troops and not question war. But I had nobody to talk about that with who could really understand it. A lot of my family, like my parents' generation, um, they were very proud of me for joining the military and proud of me for going back to school and getting a job in the VA. But um, when it came to when I would wear my Iraq Veterans Against the War t-shirt at home and they saw me, they would just say, you know, why did you, how, when did you get so angry about things? And, like, that was the extent of them speaking to me about it. When did you get so angry? Why do you think they ask about anger? Why did they think they... Good question. I don't know. I mean, certainly there's an element of anger when you're starting to realize things you really believed were all lies. Um, I was definitely getting angry in 2001, 2002, 2003. 2004, and it was really 2007 where I finally got connected with people that helped me start to begin to understand why I was so angry. Why were you so angry? That's a long time, six years. Yeah, because our country was doing things that I thought was morally reprehensible. I couldn't believe that our country was involved in some of the things we were involved in like the torture and extraordinary rendition and, um, you know, even the budget, the fact that we're, you know, our infrastructure is crumbling. But meanwhile, we have more money available at our disposal as a country, and it's just getting siphoned into the military. I'm angry about that, you know, and we, we can't even have a conversation as a country about maybe our policies were wrong, maybe the decisions we made were wrong, maybe inv- invading Afghanistan and Iraq was wrong. And I know that there are soldiers out there and veterans out there who question the war and their role in it, but because society doesn't really give veterans very much leeway to actually say or admit that maybe what they did or the war wasn't right, now we're in such a thank you for your service culture. There's no room for soldiers to like analyze for themselves whether or not they're proud of their service or whether or not maybe there were things that happened that they need to find um, they need to reconcile within themselves. You know, you have to admit that you've um, sinned in order to find redemption from that sin. What about the time when you felt like you were having you falling apart yourself? Because I'm interested in that change. Yeah. Do you remember how it was for you? I would say probably for me the tipping point was the 2006 election when so many people voted Democrat thinking the Democrats were going to get us out of Iraq. In the beginning of 2007, Bush announced the escalation and the Democrats went along with it. And I punched my TV and found out there were buses going down to Washington, D.C., and I got on one. So For the protest. Yeah, going to that protest in D.C. Because then, all of a sudden, I went from a person who just was really angry and really internally angry. I was just really frustrated and upset about ways. But I had nobody to talk about that with who could really understand it. But connecting with other veterans and people in the movement, organizing to try to say this is wrong and we want to change it, I just got connected with a lot of people who just thought about the world in a very different way than a lot of people that I knew before. You know, in an activist mentality that people are spending their 
um, days, time, you know, their life trying to work for a better, a better future. And now you're the president? Well, I'm the vice president of the Board of Directors of Veterans for Peace in the U.S., and um, a lot of board members have said that they would like me to throw in my hat to be the president of Veterans for Peace. And, you know, I don't want to uh, jinx myself, but <laughs> it's, I mean, you know, we're a really good we're a really good group of people in some ways, and we've been trying to have conversations about what is best for the organization. So it's kind of like, you know, in doing the work, a lot of people say that joining BFP or being around other veterans who are committed to peace is the best therapy they had ever had. They're like, you know, they don't feel so alone. They don't feel like they're the oddball who is somehow um, just this unpatriotic person who is a conundrum because they were in the military, but then they don't like what the military did or is doing. I mean, we're making that space, really, through our activism and organizing. We're trying to say that, you know, so many times veterans are supporting the troops. It's being used to justify really horrible positions, and we're able to make space for people to say, well, no, this doesn't help vets, it doesn't help soldiers, and we're veterans, and we can say that because we have been there and done that, and we know that endless war does not help us, that, you know, putting all of our money into uh, militarism does not help us, destroying our health care systems does not help us, you know, making college so expensive, you know, it's unaccessible to so many people, that does not help us. Not having affordable housing does not help us. I mean, there's a litany of things that people will say, well, we have to we have to sacrifice it to make sure that the troops are taken care of. And um, we, I think a big part of it is us making space, saying stop using us as an excuse to justify your bullshit policies because it does not actually help us. I mean, when you don't have a system that is painting the other person as a horrible uh, enemy to be despised and that you just recognize that we're all human beings and you have that space to see each other as human beings, then um, transformative things can happen. That was Adrian Kenny, president of Veterans for Peace, an organization dedicated to finding alternatives to war. The next interview is with Douglas Peacock, who was a Green Beret medic in Vietnam from 1967 to 68. He saw a lot of combat and got out just before the Tet Offensive. When he came home, he found he could only feel calm and comfortable living among grizzly bears in Yellowstone National Park. This was his path to recovery, and he wrote a book about it, Grizzly Years, one of the best books about war ever written by a soldier. Now he writes and speaks out defending wilderness in the United States and around the world. He lives in Montana, but spends the winter in southern Arizona. Okay, yeah, my name is Doug Peacock, and uh, we're in Ajo, Arizona. And uh, we're here because uh, 50 years ago I started hiking across and exploring the the wonderful Cabeza Prieta wilderness that lies to our west. And when the grizzly bears in Montana go to sleep, 
I miss the desert, and I make I make good of that time and come down here. I used to take 140, 150 mile hikes every winter until my children got old enough to know what Christmas was, and I had to give that up. You know, solitude is an indulgence. All right, well, it's a different subject. Do you think that we should bring our troops home? Uh, yes, we should bring them home. They're doing nothing uh, in the Far East but serving as uh, cannon fodder for politicians. There's nothing to a soldier's advantage over there. You know, they'll never get to know the people. You know, when I was in Vietnam, at least I was with the people all the time, sharing their meals and speaking their language as best I could. None of that happens today. And all of these wars in foreign countries are full of betrayal because we go and pacify an area and we, spend our, we send our special forces over to train their troops and to live with the people like brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. And, and then, you know, and then uh, the, the president uh, pulls the troops out and abandons those people, you know, and high on my list is what we did to the mountain yard people in Vietnam and also some South Vietnamese in those rural areas. We, you know, we went in and uh, won their hearts and minds and then pulled out and they were slaughtered. And we just did the same thing with the Kurds last year. You know, we pulled out, pulled the troops out and those were, you know, our, our brothers fighting next to us. But I mean, there's no satisfaction, there's no you know, there, there's no heroism in, in these kinds of wars. There just, there isn't. Do you think heroism is important? I think courage is important. And uh, it doesn't always add up to being a hero. Uh, a hero is a, a, a media manufacturer. But, uh, you know, courage is horribly important to all people in all situations. And, under some, you know, under uh, combat conditions, it is heroic, you know, risking your life to save a bunch of wounded brothers. But that's that's what it is. It's, it's not fighting an enemy. It's fighting to save, you know, your your own uh, fellow soldier. That's courage and loyalty. Those are those are those are values worth preserving. So do you think that's why people support the military now, is they want to encourage courage? No, I, I don't think they go that deep. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I think it's, you know, a blind. Everybody knows that, you know, the young people we send overseas that are being maimed and killed, it's a senseless, useless loss. And we, we somehow cover up for that and pay for it by our loyalty to the troops. It's, I think, more an acceptance of the price they pay going over there to fight these useless, unwinnable wars. For you, the transition from being a believer or being someone who thought you were fighting for a good cause to the not believing that, when did that happen, and how long did it take, or did it never happen for you? It never happened for me. I was against the war in the early 60s at the University of Michigan when I was uh, 
still a loner and solitary, but I invited Martin Luther King to come speak at campus. I did that all by myself and paid him and picked him up at the airport and took 64. him out for dinner. Oh, yeah. uh, 62. Wow. And I was against the war in Southeast Asia then, which was mainly in Laos. And I never changed my views, and yet I became a Green Beret medic. And there was no transition. So why did you become a Green Beret medic if you it, were against it? Well, fickle fate sort of threw me in the, uh, the draft caught up with me. And the Green Beret medical training is something I, from the first time I heard about it, I wanted it because it teaches you how to be a doctor in a year. And I could at least be under the illusion I was doing some good because I, you know, I treated hundreds of people. Sometimes I'd hold a sick call and see 100 people in a day, you know. With, where, where? In Quang Nai province of Vietnam, which is up in the highlands. And, you know, people would line up and they have malaria and they have, they have all kinds of dysenteries and parasites and, uh, and sometimes really exotic diseases. And I could make, you know, batches of diarrhea medicine that kind of treated everything, and malaria is not hard to treat, and, and, malaria, and malaria is around all the time. I've, I've gotten it half a dozen times. So when you talk to veterans, what do you tell them? Well, I just tell them that, that you know, my, my whole life can kind of read like a, you know, PTSD therapy, you know. I came back, I, I couldn't... Uh, was no good around people, you know, even my own family. I went in the, to the woods because I'm very comfortable by camping by myself in wilderness. And uh, I ran into grizzly bears, and I was lucky because they get you out of yourself real quick, you know, because you can't take yourself that seriously when you're dealing with a lot of grizzlies in the bush. But, you know, it, it kind of looks like everything I do is, uh, you know, is a struggle for healing. So... Are there process? Is there a process that's the same for everybody? Are there stages that you've gone through in your life? Like, what about anger? Well, I got I have, I have a lot of anger. That's never gone away. I just try to make it a little more constructive. You know, I I choose my enemies pretty carefully, and uh, there's plenty of candidates. So you you know. What are the stages of recovery or healing? Well. The first one is somehow get out of yourself. Get out of yourself so you can look back in at your life and, you know, see what, see the truth. What, what is there before judgment? You know, the naked, unveiled truth. And uh, for me, I said it was lucky that I ran into grizzly bears because uh, they immediately externalize your thought process. You know, there's something out there uh, that if it chooses to, can kill and eat you at any time, and you got to pay attention. You know, you can't think about uh, can't, can't think about how miserable you are, your girlfriend, or your portfolio, or any of that stuff. And well, you somewhere in your life, you got to develop a sense of empathy and caring about things and people that you have no vested interest in. It's like you know, to really understand climate change, I think you probably have to care about, you know, the, the granddaughter of a Southeast Asian family, you know. And that's, that's really hard because uh, we're not, we lack empathy, 
you know, we, it's just, uh, you can, you can feel something for your relatives and maybe the neighbor next door, but, you know, we just, uh, we let the, there's so much suffering in the world. You got to somehow care about it. And I think that empathy, um, is a prelude to action. You know, it was for me. And then, of course, the next stage is action. You fight for causes every, every fucking day, you know, and, uh, you know, I do it every way. You know, I talk, I write, you know, I do, do whatever is necessary. And I am still a soldier, a warrior for peace, and for the planet, and I'm going to fight to the end of my life to save grizzly bears and everything else I can, you know. And that's a life unto itself, you know. Yeah. The, the work will never be done. And your healing, too, will never be complete, I think. I'd like to thank Doug Peacock and Adrian Kenny, also Elliot Woods and Garrett Reppenhagen for talking to me about this difficult subject. Listening to their voices over and over while editing, I realize that the thing they have in common is courage. They're very brave people. And the thing they all said was that their own recovery came through social activism, speaking up, writing articles and books, connecting with other people, and working for social change. So I'm going to try to do that, but I don't know how right now, other than to say thank you very much for listening and supporting this show. This show is my way of connecting and not feeling alone and crazy, and I couldn't do it without you. I'm going to close this series with a song. You've heard it before. Maybe you don't want to hear it again, but this is a very good performance by Brandy Carlisle two years ago, live on KEXP in New Jersey. Also, a special thanks to Becky Liebman. Come gather round, people, wherever you roam. And admit that the waters around you have grown. And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. If your time to you is worth saving Well then you'd better start swimming Or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are changing And all you writers and critics Who prophesize with your pens Yeah, well, keep your eyes wide, the chance won't come again. And don't speak too soon, for the wheel's still in spin. And there's no telling who that it's naming. For the loser right now might be later to win. And the time. Congressman, please heed the call. Don't you stand in your doorway 
don't lock up your halls for he who gets hurt will be he who has stalled and that battle outside that's raging will soon be rattling your windows and shaking your walls for the times they are changing oh you mothers and fathers from across the land well, don't criticize what you can't understand cause you're so Yeah.